on a Friday night. Uh, I, so, someone mentioned to me recently that uh, they feel like they haven't seen me in a while. And in a sense, it's true uh, because uh, there was, you know, the North Creek Conference um, and uh, I was preparing for my ordination exam. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's been a little while, but I'm glad to be able to, back, to be, be, be back with you all. Uh, and I know there are some of you who are newer here who I haven't had a chance to meet just yet. And so I hope to meet you all soon. Um, I also want to be. Able, I also want to thank Bill for filling in for Pastor Ray last week when he was sick, uh, and while I was out of town with my family. So, Bill, we're grateful for you and for how you taught us uh, about Jesus calming the storm and uh, doing so with uh, not too much notice. And uh, we're just really grateful for that. Uh, even just hearing um, how you brought to life the narrative uh, as you gave us some pictures from the Sea of Galilee, uh, it was really, it was really cool to hear. So, hopefully, you guys enjoyed that. You were blessed by that. Um, and, you know, hopefully one day we can actually all go to Israel together. I know at least some of our elders are talking about maybe having an SFBC trip to Israel, which would be super cool. I would love to be able to do that with you guys if you guys want to go. So uh, let's, you know, let's see. Let's see what the Lord allows. But uh, I know some of our elders are, are actively trying to make that a reality. So let's, let's see, uh, you know, let's see what the Lord brings. Well, our study tonight brings us back to the book of Mark, to Mark 5, uh, and in, we're going to read our sermon text in the um, message tonight, just because it's a, a longer uh, section. Um, but before we begin, let's pray and ask the Lord for his blessing as we open up his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for just your loving kindness to us uh, and for how you help us know you better. We understand, Lord, that uh, as we come to church this evening, that there are a lot of different things that can distract us, a lot of different things that can tug at our hearts and cause us to uh, perhaps even be distressed and distraught, um, and uh, it's also possible for us to come in here, um, if we're not feeling those things, uh, feel burdened by other things, or uh, even to um, come in uh, to church after uh, having sat through traffic and having our patients tested and, uh, and whatnot. And so, Lord, we pray uh, to you for forgiveness for our sins, that you would uh, help us to remember that no matter uh, what it is we're feeling, it's not, it, it never is a justification for uh, sinning against you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would help us to, even as we um, open your word together that you would help us to have a right heart within us so that we can um, so that we can approach your throne rightly so that we can approach you rightly and so that we can see you as you want us to see you so we pray that you would help us get all the sin out of the way so that we can see you clearly thank you father for this time it's in your son's name we pray amen well, when you think about the supernatural, what do you think about? Do you think about Halloween time, when we have monsters and witches and zombies? Do you think about scary movies? Do you think about Marvel movies? You know, typically, whenever we think about the supernatural, we tend to think about all these things that are make-believe, right? the things that are fictional. And we don't think it can hurt us, and so we're just, we're just kind of like, eh, whatever. It's not, of, uh, it's not of any consequence. It doesn't really affect me. The supernatural's not real. 
But when we read our Bibles, what we come to realize is that there actually is such thing as the supernatural. If we are talking about the things that are spiritual, the things that cannot be seen, we know that there are those things that are real, that we cannot see, that we can't perceive. We know that angels exist, but none of us have seen an angel. Well, minus the Christmas decorations and you know shows like uh, Touched by an Angel. I don't know if you've, you've seen that. That was popular when I was a kid. Um, we are told that demons and Satan exist. Right? And Satan's not that, that guy who's like horned with, uh, and colored red that we see in the cartoons and pops up on your shoulder telling you to do bad things. Right? It's, that's not who Satan is. Right? But he exists. And, I mean, of course, ultimately, we know, we're reminded that God exists. So the supernatural is a real thing. It's not something, it's not a figment of our imagination. It's not a a fictional boogeyman that's meant to scare us into uh, behaving right and believing in Jesus, right? The supernatural is a real thing. And though we understand that the biblically supernatural things are real, we sometimes don't have a good grasp of their power in relation to one another. For example, there are many in the world, including many in the church, who believe that Satan is an equal and opposite evil power compared to God's holy and righteous power. Therefore, many mistakenly give Satan and his demons a lot more credit than they deserve. In our passage tonight, we're going to see that Jesus has authority over the supernatural in a way that proves that God's authority is greater than any power the devil and his minions might seem to have. And so in our text tonight, we're going to examine two responses to Jesus's power that emphasize Jesus's complete authority over the supernatural. And the responses that we're going to see are from the people within the text. Okay, so two responses to Jesus's power that emphasize Jesus's complete authority over the supernatural. These responses are, uh, number one, the demoniac submission to Jesus, and two, the people's marveling of Jesus' power. So our first point is the demoniac's submission to Jesus. Last week in Mark 4, we saw Jesus' tremendous display of power over the natural world as he silenced a great windstorm that arose while he and his disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee. Now, a windstorm that was strong enough to cause professional fishermen in Jesus' group of disciples to be scared, to be concerned about dying through the sinking of their ship, should tell us that this windstorm was legitimately scary. Here in San Francisco, you know, we're sitting on a hill, we get the bay breeze coming in every now and then. Right? We can get some, some pretty stiff winds, but in comparison to other places, the wind that we get here is really not that bad. I looked it up just out of curiosity. The average speed of the wind that we may get here is around eight miles per hour. At most, it has gotten to maybe about 33 miles per hour, which is still significant, but it's not that bad. Back in May of this year, there was a windstorm in Galilee, which led a local news outlet to declare as a headline, Bible-level windstorm batters Sea of Galilee. And this windstorm reached up to 87 miles per hour and caused the waters in the Sea of Galilee to, uh, to stir up. And there were huge waves that jumped up onto the shore and caused millions of dollars in damage and, and flooding uh, of, of these communities. Um, 
having lived through a hurricane now, um, being in, uh, in Florida when Hurricane Ian hit, I can tell you that the, the, the speed of 87 miles per hour was how fast the wind was blowing on the outside part of the hurricane. Right? So it's not as bad as being in the eye of the storm where it gets about 120 miles per hour or more, right? but it's still pretty significant. And so, uh, so these disciples, they're scared, obviously, right? They know that their life uh, could end, and they cry out to Jesus. And upon hearing his disciples cry, Jesus wakes up from his sleep, rebukes the windstorm, and everything settles down and is peaceful, leading the disciples to wonder who they're in a boat with, since even the wind and sea obey him. And you and I, we would wonder the same thing. Right? If we yell at a rainstorm, nothing happens. Right? Try it the next time it's raining. Right? If you start yelling at the rain, say, stop! It's not going to happen. Right? The rain's still going to come down. You're going to be all wet. Right? You're going to have a bunch of rain in your mouth. Right? It's not going to work. But with Jesus, right, he demonstrates his great power over nature through his words. And in verses 1, of, one and 2 of chapter 5, oops, sorry, here's a map. I forgot. I gave you a map. All right, so anyways, uh, so this, this route in orange is, um, is where they went from. They were in Capernaum, and they go over to this place uh, called Gergesia, and uh, so that's where they end up washing up. Sorry, I forgot to show the map. Um, okay, so in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, Mark tells us, uh, okay, uh, Mark tells us, uh, then they came to the other side of the sea into the region of the Gerasenes. And when he had gotten out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. All right, so you, so like, no sooner does Jesus get out of the boat that a demon-possessed man rushes him. Right, rushes him. He comes out of the tombs. Can you imagine that if you were one of the disciples? Or you just got out of the, the Sea of Galilee after this tremendous rainstorm came through, or you're still shook after that, and you're still shook about this guy who's in your boat who just talks to the, to the wind and the, and the sea, and everything settles down and gets super calm. And then all of a sudden, you have this scary dude running down the hill. He's screaming, and later Mark tells us that he's naked. That's pretty scary. Actually, wait, no, Mark doesn't tell that, but other uh, biblical authors uh, fill us in, and they tell us that this guy is naked, right? That's already pretty scary. It's a bunch of scary things coming in all at once. How would you feel as one of the disciples? You wouldn't feel that great, right? He's like, oh, no, more? More? How much more can we take? And this man, you know, he's not necessarily just crazy looking. There's other factors that make him really intimidating too. Uh, in verses three to four, uh, in verses three to four, it says this. Um, so the man with the un- unclean spirit met him who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was screaming and gashing himself with stones. Mark doesn't provide us with this particular detail, but in Luke chapter eight twenty-seven, Luke tells us 
that, uh, um, as a result of this demon possession, this man had not put on clothes for a very long time. He was completely naked. He was completely exposed to the elements, which means that his body was subject to the intense heat of the day, but also the intense cold in the evening. And as you can imagine, as he's running through the mountains and the hills, right, that he's subject to all these sharp rocks that are there too, which is why it says that he was gashing himself as he's yelling and screaming and running through the mountains. You can also see that this dude is living in the tombs, right? That's not normal, okay? There are some people who think that it might be cool and fun to stay in the tombs for a little bit, right? But that's not that's not something that's a normal desire, right? You, if you're living, you don't normally want to be living with the dead. But that's this guy. Right? He was more comfortable at home with the dead than he was with the living. And as we read this description of this man, right, there's a sense where we can be fearful about what demons could do to a person. But instead of being fearful about what demons can do to a person, since we have Christ and demons cannot possess Christians, we instead should have a greater sense of compassion and pity. This man was under complete domination by this demon such that he was no longer able to take care of himself. He was a danger to himself and to others. And he was such a huge danger to himself and others that we see, going back to Mark 5, that the people who lived in the, in the area tried to bind him with shackles and chains in order to prevent him from hurting other people and himself. Right? But no one was strong enough to subdue him. Right? Even that language of binding him with shackles and chains and subduing him, right? that language we don't normally use that with people, do we? We don't use that with people. That's something that you might talk about, uh, or that's something that you might use in reference maybe to a wild animal. And this language is almost dehumanizing. Demon possession dehumanizes this man. And think about this freakish strength that he has. Right? The shackles and the chains that they put on him, they're, they're not weak materials. This is iron, right? Iron chains, iron shackles. You and I couldn't get out of iron chains and iron shackles unless we had scientific help, right? Like, you know, getting a fire extinguisher and freezing it and then breaking it, right? That's how we could get out of it, right? Or that trick where you break your thumb and you slip it, slip your hand out of the thing, right? That's how we could get out of it. But this, this guy, he's breaking it with his own, his own strength. Right? That's how strong he is because of this demon that is within him. And apparently, this man wasn't even alone. Right? One demoniac, right, demon-possessed person, is bad enough. But in Matthew 8.28, we are told that there was another demon-possessed man with this one that we see in Mark and Luke's account. And these men were so extremely violent that nobody was able to travel through that area of the tombs lest they be assaulted by these two men. Right? One crazy guy running around naked and screaming and yelling is bad enough. Having two is just like, okay, we're just not going there. Right? So uh, 
Now, we're probably, some of you might be wondering, why does Matthew talk about two, but Mark and Luke only refer to the one? Well, it's probably because Mark and Luke just want to focus on the one who was the worst. Right? They want to focus on the primary aggressor, the one who was in the worst shape. Uh, and we're going to see why in just a moment. Um, but the big picture point here is that, the, is that demon possession made this man wild and violent, almost as if he was an animal. Now, we see more of that, as Mark tells us in Mark 5.5, 5, uh, and constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was screaming and gashing himself with stones. Right? Like other people in the New Testament who are demon-possessed, the demons have no care for the people they are tormenting. Though they possess the body, the demons who possess these individuals are intent to do as much damage as they can to the ones they possess. Night and day, this man was tormented as he was running through the mountains, screaming and gashing himself with stones as he ran through the rocks. Remember, he's not clothed. He's completely exposed, and he has to deal with whatever this demon is putting him through. And so after Mark gives us this description. He helps us see the pitiful condition that this man is in. He brings us back to how this man interacts with Jesus in verses 6 through 7. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God, do not torment me. You know, though this man bows down before Jesus. The demon who speaks to Jesus through this man does not bow as an act of worship. He does so recognizing Jesus' divinity and rights to be respected. He understands that he has no choice but to bow down before the Son of God. It's as one preacher said about the final day, jumping ahead a little bit, Right? But one day, every knee will bow before Jesus, either in worship or in subjugation. Right? We would rather bow the knee in worship than be the ones who have been conquered right? in subjugation, ready for wrath. But anyways, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But every knee bows, that's the point. Right? And this, this demon-possessed man who bows his knees, recognizing who's in front of him, yes, he does that, right? but make no Make no mistake, there is no true respect of Jesus. There is no true worship of Jesus. There is a fear of punishment, yeah, but no respect. How do we know? Look at what he says to Jesus. He begs Jesus not to do anything to him. And he also tries to appeal to God the Father to get Jesus to leave him alone. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? A demon saying, please, by God's name, leave me alone. I implore you by God, do not torment me. That's weird, right? That a demon would say, God help me. Don't let this guy, Jesus, hurt me. That's really strange. That's really strange. It's unexpected for sure. Now, some commentators have said that this demon, by naming Jesus as the Son of the Most High, calling him Jesus, calling him Son of the Most High, uh, is an attempt, a futile attempt, 
by this demon to try and grab control of Jesus, right? And it, uh, just to make sure that Jesus leaves him alone. Now, I can understand why people would think that because you know, sometimes we think we need to know the name of the, of the thing that we're trying to, to, um, to exercise out, um, the, name, the name of the demon that we're trying to exercise out, but we, we don't see that, right? We don't see that in the scriptures. Now, Jesus, when he exercises a demon, when he casts a demon out, he doesn't call them by name. He doesn't uh, necessarily have to do that. He just commands them to leave, and they do. And so while I understand why some people would say, well, this demon is trying to exert control over Jesus uh, through God, right? this demon already knows that that would be pointless. Right? He already knows that his power has nothing over God. And so it's far more likely that he's just desperate to avoid punishment. He's just desperate to avoid punishment. Um, and so he's just, just screaming out for, for some, some mercy. Um, now, why was he afraid of punishment? Well, verse 8, because Jesus was actively trying to, uh, or was actively telling this guy, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Right? So he's, his fear is driven by a detail that Matthew actually gives us in Matthew 8, 29, um, where the demons know that the time of their judgment is something uh, that comes later. Right? Because here in Matthew 8, 29, um, the demoniac is saying, have you come to torment us before the time? Well, what is that time? Now, that time, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, explained to us a little bit in Revelation. Um, this is just for your notes, for, uh, but we're not going to turn there necessarily. But Revelation um, chapter 20, um, yeah, chapter 20, where Satan is defeated finally, right? And that's where that final judgment comes in for um, for, for the demons. And so that's what, that's what this demon's afraid of. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's not supposed to happen yet. What are you doing? Why are you here? Why are you trying to come at me? Right? Why, are you trying to get, why are you trying to judge me right now? This, you are too early, Jesus. Leave me alone for right now. And so returning to Mark 5, we see that Jesus' purpose, though, is not to judge this demon before the time is right. His purpose is not that. But rather, it was for the deliverance of the men who were possessed by the demons. Now, it does appear as if Jesus had been, right, had been commanding the demon to leave the man. Uh, it says here, uh, for he had been saying to him. So it seems as if Jesus had already been in the process of telling him to leave, and yet he didn't leave. So is there a problem here? Is Jesus' uh, divine power somehow defective or, or whatnot? Is there an issue uh, with Jesus' power and his authority. Um, well, no, right? But uh, rather, God had a purpose for allowing for this demon to continue to remain in the man, even though he had been telling him to come out. Right? We've seen this also in uh, some of the miracles of Jesus, right? For there was that uh, one blind man that Jesus uh, was uh, healing, right? And the first time he... Um, he had the, the, the blind man put the, the mud on his eyes, right? And then he washed it. He's like, what do you see? And he said, I see men as if like trees. And then Jesus does it again, right? And then the guy can see clearly after he washes the second time, right? So there's a purpose to the prolonging of Jesus' miracle. And we're going to see why um, in just a moment, okay? Um, in verse 9, in verse 9, um, it says here that Jesus was asking this demon, what is your name? 
And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. So if you are familiar with some of the other passages in the New Testament where Jesus uh, casts out demons, he, like I said earlier, he does not regularly ask them what their name is. Right? He doesn't even mention them by name when he casts them out. He just commands them to leave, and they do. But what we see from this particular uh, incident is that there are multiple demons. Right? So the reason why the demons didn't come out immediately is because God wanted us to see, right, and future readers to see, just how great of subjugation this guy was in. He wanted to demonstrate this great subjugation that this man was experiencing. Unlike a typical demon possession where there was one demon in one man, this man had many demons in him. And perhaps this is the reason why the other demoniac is not focused upon by Mark and Luke. Perhaps, okay, I'm just speculating here, but perhaps the reason why we're focusing on this one guy is because the other guy had a normal demon possession, Right, just one demon. It's possible. I'm not sure exactly, right? But that would be my guess as to why this particular one is focused on and the other one's like ignored as if he doesn't exist. Anyways, um, we don't know for sure, but that's just a possible explanation. Verses 10 to 13. And he began pleading with him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons pleaded with him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Jesus doesn't have to allow the demons to go into the pigs, but he grants them permission to do so. Now, notice right, that he grants them permission. And while, they were in the, while they were in his presence, the demons couldn't go, yipes, let's get out of here. Right? Leave their host, then run away. Like, they, they couldn't do that. They needed Jesus' permission. His power and authority is such that the demons must obey him. They can do nothing apart from what he allows them to do. Circling back to why we learned about the number of demons possessing the man, uh, you know, it's clearly seen in the fact that as these demons rush into this local herd of pigs, right, at least 2,000 of them were inhabited. Now, were there multiple demons to each pig? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. Right? But what we do know is that all of the pigs were possessed by these demons, and the result and the resulting chaos was such that the whole herd rushed off the cliff where they were all drowned in the sea. Now, something that is important to note uh, is that the drowning of the pigs was not Jesus' intent, right? So by allowing the demons to go into the pigs, right, Jesus is not responsible for the pigs go, uh, you know, rushing off into the cliff because he was just delivering the man from, uh, from, the, from the demons, Right? It's the demons, when they go into the pigs, right? when they do what demons do best, right? cause chaos and inflict damage, that's what led to the, to the death of their hosts. Right? You think about it, right? for the demoniac. Right? As he's running around the mountains and the cliffs, naked and 
and, uh, and um, all bloodied up by all the sharp rocks and everything like that, that was the demon's doing. That wasn't God's doing, right? So, um, so it was the demons right, doing what they do best, right, causing chaos, causing destruction. They were responsible for the death of the pigs. I mean, they didn't have to, right? They could have, they could have made the pigs go up the hill. They could have made the pigs, I mean, you have demon pigs running around causing chaos in the village. You, that could happen too, right? We've seen, uh, we've seen TV shows with, and movies with less. So they could have done that. But anyways, that's not the point. Right? The point is here that, the, that the, the demoniac's submission to Jesus tells us something. Right, these demons submitting themselves to Jesus and actually having to do whatever he allows them to do, not whatever they want to do, right, it tells us something. What, is it that, uh, what, what, what are we told? And how does this show us Jesus' complete authority over the supernatural? Well, as we see, Jesus' authority over the demoniacs, uh, not only in casting the demons out, but even in, de- in determining where they could go, we're reminded that Jesus' power is not imaginary. Jesus' power is not imaginary. He is not a deluded person who has a God complex. Right? His authority over nature and over the supernatural point to the reality that he really is the son of the most high God. There is no one like him. And as a result, he is worthy of our worship. For those of us who may believe that Satan and his minions actually can stand up against Jesus or can be tempted to believe that, they have, that the demons have power to fight God, the demons, uh, yeah, the demons' forceful submission to Jesus is a reminder that Jesus' power and authority, it's unrivaled. It's unrivaled. Now, what, what do we do about the problem of trials and difficulties in our lives? What do we do with that? Well, when God allows trials and difficulties in our lives, it's not as if Satan and his demons somehow overcome God. Right? It's not like they surprise God and they were able to launch an attack on God's people when God wasn't looking, and uh, therefore they're able to cause all that damage in our lives. God this is hard to wrap our minds around, but God sovereignly chose to allow these trials and difficulties into our lives to refine us, to challenge us, to stretch us, and to grow us more in our faith and more in our Christ-likeness. Our sufferings are never meaningless. It might seem meaningless. It might seem like God is being over the top, but it is never meaningless. It's never over the top. God allows these periods of testing into our lives for our good. For our good. It doesn't seem good in the moment, but it is for our ultimate good because when we realize that there is nothing and no one that we can turn to in this world to help us, what we realize is that the only one we can turn to is God. And that sets us on the right path. That sets us on the right trajectory because we find the one who actually can do something about our condition. So instead of despising the trials, instead of despising the difficulties or uh, seeking to be quickly rid of them, we ought to embrace the trials and the difficulties that come into our lives. Remembering that God 
your Father who loves you, who sent his Son to die for you, who raised his Son from the dead so that when you believe upon him, you can be saved, and who forever keeps you in his family after he's adopted you, has purposefully allowed these trials in your life, not because he's cruel and wants to see you suffer or because he's curious as to how you would respond, but because he really does love you. When he says that he loves you, he means it. And he wants you to grow in ways that you would not be able to if everything in your life just stayed the same. And that's hard to understand. That's hard to wrap our minds around because we're kind of like, wait, God, if you really love me, though, why would you do that? Or why would you allow me to suffer these things? It's because he knows what is best for you in the long run. It's because he knows that you do need to be challenged. You do need to be stretched. Maybe there are things that we can't see that these trials reveal. I've said it to you before, but what trials and difficulties in our lives often do is they expose what is in our hearts. Our hearts are like tea bags. I've used this analogy with you before, right? And when the hot water of the trial comes into our lives, it reveals what's inside. There are a lot of times where we don't know what's inside until the trials come. And that's why God allows these things into our lives so that we can see where that sin is hiding, and we can begin to deal with it. Or if I can borrow um, the words of Job, as he suffered, shall we who accept good from God not accept calamity? Especially when we know that God allows it into our lives for our ultimate good. We can't just say, okay, God, bless me, bless me, bless me. But when then when he chooses to allow for us to enter trial, we're like, dude, what the heck? Why? And we have to accept all of it because we understand that he has a purpose for all of it. It's something important for, for us all to consider. Now, this brings us to the second response to Jesus' power that points us to Jesus' complete authority over the supernatural, which is the people's marveling of Jesus' power. The people's marveling of Jesus' power. Verses 14 and 15. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the countryside. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the demon-possessed man sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. All right, so apparently these herdsmen of the pigs witnessed the entire encounter. This, you know, they weren't just out to lunch. They were right there. They saw everything. So they, they saw this entire encounter between Jesus and the demoniacs, and they quickly run out, and they go tell everybody. Right? People in the city, people in the countryside, they just try and go tell everybody. Now, obviously, news like this is not something that you just shrug about, right? It's like, hey, guess what? This one dude, he came by, and he, he cast out all the demons, and all the pigs ran into the sea. And you're like, oh, okay. Right? No. We would just be like, oh, okay. We would be like, really? What? I got to go see this for myself. Right? And we would go, and that's what these people did. They ran over. They wanted to see what had happened. Because remember, these demoniacs, they had terrorized the people with their violence. They changed the way that they lived their lives because they couldn't go through the mountains. They couldn't go to the tombs. And so they 
had to change their lives. Not only did they have to change their lives, right, but before they just kind of let the demoniacs do whatever they wanted to do, these people were trying to protect themselves and the demoniacs by binding them with shackles and binding them with chains, but ultimately they weren't successful. And so they want to know what happened here. How is this possible? And so what do they find? Well, they find that the man who, um, who had the legion was in a completely opposite state than what they know him to be. Right? Instead of being naked, he was clothed. Instead of being mentally tormented, he was in his right mind. Or if we know, or if we, sorry, if we knew that someone was a certain way, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they were completely different. There was a there was a there was a 180 degree change. Our minds would be blown, right? We'd be like, "What? How did this happen?" Right? We wouldn't just be like, "Oh, okay, nice, you've changed. Proud of you." Right? We wouldn't do that. We'd just be like, "What? Hold up, wait a minute. What just happened?" Right? That would be more of our response. Right? In a sense, this is what these people felt too. Now. They, they felt this astonishment, but they were also fearful, right? They were also fearful. Who could do such a thing to a person who was seen as a lost cause? And obviously, these people were questioning what had happened in more detail because in verse 16, it says, uh, and, and those who had seen it recounted to them how this had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. See, normally, you would expect that such an amazing testimony of what Jesus did for the demoniac, you, you would expect that to lead to amazement and wonder, but you would also expect it, possibly, to lead to people placing their faith in Jesus Christ, right? Overwhelmingly, you would think that that would be the natural response. They see a miracle, they believe in Jesus, but that's not what we see, because in verse 17, they began to plead with him to leave their region. And in a sense, you can't blame them for being afraid of Jesus. Because the amount of power and authority that he just displayed is incredible. It's unheard of. What is this? Who is this? How can he do what he did? And in fact, in response to a previous miracle, Peter himself had a similar reaction to Jesus performing a miracle in his presence. In Luke 5, 8, uh, so, you know, they've been fishing all night, and then Jesus, and Jesus asked them if they caught anything, and um, they said no, and so Jesus was like, okay, we'll throw your net on the other side of the boat, and they do it, right? And there's all these fish in the net, and they're like, whoa, what is this? Right? And Jesus, I mean, not Jesus, Peter's response to seeing all these fish, to seeing this miracle is, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. See, what Peter recognized in that moment was that he was in the presence of the holiness of Christ. And that's why he says, get away from me. I can't be near you because you're so holy. And ultimately, though, though he recognizes his sinfulness before Jesus, we know Peter's response is one where he ended up following Jesus, right? Wanting to become more like Jesus, wanting to die for Jesus, right? wanting to be nearer to Jesus. He knew that that was the best thing for him, that that was where, that Jesus was the one through whom they were going to get eternal life. But notice these people, their response is not the same, right? They see 
Jesus. They see his power. They see his holiness. And they want no part in him or with him. You know, sometimes we come across people who tell us that if they could see a miracle, they would believe. If God could just do one thing for them, right, get them out of a jam, get them out of a traffic ticket, uh, get them out of whatever mess that they're in, that they would believe in Jesus, or they would become Christians. But what we see time and again in Scripture is that even if people did see a miracle, it did not always lead to belief. In fact, more often than not, it led to a further hardening of the heart. It led to a rejection of Jesus, which is what we see here. They're so afraid of Jesus because of what they had just seen that they're just like, can you just leave, right? And it's not even leave our city, right? Leave our region. It would be as if Jesus came here, did a miracle here in San Francisco, and we're all so freaked out. We're like, can you just get out of California? Can you just get out of the state? Go somewhere else. Stay away. Go far away. Go back where you came from. And what we see is that Jesus, though he doesn't have to comply with their request, he does. He does. He does so graciously. However, not everyone feels this way. Verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was pleading with him that he might accompany him. Now, if you look at your Bibles, right, going back to verse 10, you do see the verb plead and its cognates repeated. If you have the NASB, you have the word implore. If you have the ESV, you see the word beg. Now, notice that each time we see this verb from verses 10 all the way to 17, Jesus grants the request of whoever is asking him something. Every time he grants the request. And so, as readers of this account, you're expecting him to grant the request. Right? Because every time they plead, he grants. So you're expecting him to do that. And, you know, even theologically, we're just kind of like, well, yeah. Right? You just saved this dude. Why wouldn't you let him come with you? Right? So we're expecting that. But then, what do we see? Well, in verse 19, in verse 19, it says, and he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. We don't know how much time passed between Jesus casting out the demons and the people coming to, to investigate what happened, but presumably it's enough time for Jesus to preach the gospel to this man so that though he was once demon-possessed, he is now a believer in Jesus Christ. And interestingly enough, right, I mean, Jesus didn't have three years of seminary to give this guy, right? but interestingly enough, this guy knew enough of the gospel where Jesus says, okay, you need to go home, and you need to preach the gospel to everybody in your home, right? Tell them what God has done for you, how God has had mercy on you, right? That's, that's challenging for us, isn't it? Because oftentimes we think, oh, but I don't know enough to go evangelize, right? We think that I don't have the training. I didn't take the class, right? Or even if you took the class, I, I still don't know. But what do we see here? This man knows the gospel, and Jesus says, go, preach the gospel to your family, right? Tell people what the Lord has done for you, and he obeys. Verse 20, and he went away 
and began to preach in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was marveling. It is without question that this man's absence from his family was noticeable when he was demon-possessed. Right? No one's going to be like, oh, where'd dad go? I don't know. Right? He's playing hide-and-seek. Who knows? Right? No, they know he's gone. They know there's a problem. Right? So for this man to return home, to be restored to his former self, and proclaiming the greatness of God and how God had mercy upon him, it would have been an astounding message for everyone who heard it. And it's for this reason that everyone who heard this man preaching began to marvel at what they heard. Right? They see the visual evidence in front of them. They hear of the goodness, and they're like, yeah, I believe it. And also, just for fun, look carefully at the end of verse 20. Right? In verse 19, Jesus told the man to report to the people, right, to be a witness to what great things the Lord has done for him and how he had mercy upon him. Right? So that's the Lord. You and I would usually assume that would be God the Father. Right? But in verse 20, what do we see? Who is he preaching? Jesus. Jesus. Even this man, even this man understood that Jesus is the same as God the Father, which is why he's preaching Jesus to the people. Now, this reminds us that the reason why Jesus has this power and authority over the supernatural is because he actually is God. He's no pretender. He's not a faker. He actually is God. Nobody can have the same power as them. No one has the authority to do what they do. The power to exercise authority over the supernatural can only come from God the Father, which is why everyone who heard the message about Jesus and how he delivered the demoniac marvel at what they hear because they're like, whoa, that's God's doing. That's what God would do. Now, when you and I think about this narrative, right, it can be hard to think about how we ought to apply what we've learned to our lives because it's like, well, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? I can't run around and you know, cast out demons, so what do I do? How am I supposed to to use this? Well, let me back things up a little bit so that we can understand our response. As Mark has presented Jesus to us in the gospel of Mark so far, we see that Jesus is on a mission. He's on a mission to tell people about the gospel and the coming of the kingdom. That's his mission. And because the people rejected him and began to say, that his works were the works of Satan, right? that's when Jesus began to teach in parables so that only those whom God graciously granted understanding would believe the gospel. In the calming of the storm and in the, in, in the deliverance of the demoniac, what we see is proof. What we have is proof that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He is not the devil. He does not do his deeds through the power of the devil. He actually is God. That's why he has power and authority over the natural world and over the supernatural world. When you and I think about Jesus, what is our response to him? Do we strive to be nearer to him and to become more like him? Do we desire to be a witness to the gospel which has changed our lives? Look at that former demoniac. Look at his response. He doesn't know theology like like we do. He hasn't sat in our Sunday school classes. He hasn't sat under our preaching. But he is faithfully proclaiming the truths that he knows. 
I think we would all agree that we could be better in our evangelism. And for me personally, I'm just thinking about next week, right? Thanksgiving when all the family's coming, coming by, right? For years, I've had opportunity to talk to my unsaved, well, actually, well, not for years because, you know, pandemic, we weren't able to go do things. But for years previously, minus the pandemic, I've had all the opportunity in the world to talk to my uncles and aunts and my cousins who do not know Christ about Jesus. And I've not done so. Why? Part of it's fear. Part of it is not wanting to make things awkward at the dinner table. Part of it is just not wanting to be seen as the crazy cousin, the crazy nephew. Right? Or, you know, worse, just loving my own comfort, wanting to go do my own thing, rather play video games with the, with the little ones than, than actually having hard conversations. I'm just being honest with you. I'm just being real with you. I've had all these opportunities. I've watched my little cousins go to college now. I have one, no, I have, yeah, yeah, I have one left who is an unbeliever. I have two younger ones that I can invest in who are believers, praise God. Right? But I've not taken the time. Right? We all can do better in our evangelism, yes? We all can do better in loving the people around us, in caring for the people around us who do not know Christ. And so we can all grow in this. If we truly believe in the good news of the gospel, we have to be people who live like Jesus is sovereign. Not only believing it up here, but living it out too. We have to live like our lives truly have been changed so that we can help other people see that they need salvation too, that they need forgiveness too. It's not whatever floats your boat. It's not, I'm glad that works for you. You can embrace your truth and whatever, right? We have to live as if this is real to us. If this is real to you, if you believe that your unsaved loved ones are going to hell if they do not believe in Jesus Christ, we have to act in desperation, We have to act with urgency to try and grab them by their ankles and say, no, you will not go this way without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will not go this way without hearing how much Jesus Christ loves you. If we believe that, we have to live like it. And that means that we also have to be careful of our own selves, of our own sin in our lives that would disqualify Christ in other people's eyes, yes? Even before I got up to this pulpit, even before I got up to this stage to lead worship, I was wrestling with my own sin. I could say, well, yeah, you know, it's it's stress-related because... It's almost 7.30, we got to start, and you know, there's all sorts of stuff that still needs to get done and whatever. I can make those excuses, right? I can make those excuses, but there is no excuse. There absolutely is no excuse because it doesn't matter what pressures are on me. It doesn't matter what stresses I was under. Right? God makes us all response-able. Right? We are able to respond in the way that he wants us to respond. We are able to respond not in sin, but in righteousness. And we all still fail. But praise God, there is grace for that, yes? Praise God that he is patient with us, that he is merciful to us, and he gives us another chance. And so, right, do you believe 
this gospel that you've heard. If you do, we all ought to live like it. This evening, we, see it, we saw how Jesus delivered the demoniac from the legion that was within him. We were reminded of the fact that Jesus truly has authority over the supernatural and that Satan and his demons do not actually have equal and opposite evil powers to Jesus. And we saw that through the, through the demoniac's submission to Jesus. We saw that through the marveling of the people to Jesus' authority. They recognize that something different is happening here. And as a result, when we walk away from this sermon, we're reminded of our need to believe what the Bible tells us about Jesus. But not just believe it intellectually. Again, right? not just an intellectual exercise, but an intellectual knowledge that leads to faithful practice. It has to lead to faithful practice. We practically place our faith in him no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how long you have to sit in the circumstances. Right? God doesn't remove the circumstances when we ask all the time, right? Not, not immediately. Sometimes you got to sit in it. And when you have to sit in it, what are you going to do? Are you going to complain? Are you going to say, well, this is just not fair and throw a temper tantrum? Or are you going to say, God, I don't know why you have me here. I don't understand why you have me going through this. But what I do want to do, no matter what, is to respond the way that you want me to respond, to learn the lessons that you want me to learn and to strive to please you in all circumstances. Right? That's the response that we strive for. We will fail, right? but that's the response that we strive for. We've seen that God has great power. He has great authority because he's God. So will we live as if we believe that he has great power? Will we live like he really does have authority? Or do we think, well, you know what? The devil has the power. It's in his hands. Right? So I can't do anything about it. Right? We, might actually, we might not actually come out and say it in those terms, right? but the temptation to believe that God is not in control is certainly there. Right? We've thought that at points, right? During the pandemic, when we were, when we were home alone, we thought that. Right? What is happening? How can God be in this? Instead, we ought to place our faith in our Lord. And when you do so, you will find that peace that he promises. You will find that comfort because you know that this God is real, he's powerful, and he does love you. And when you are loved by God, there is nothing that can separate you from his love. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for this text and how it shows us your great power over the supernatural. While it's difficult to try and think about how this practically applies to our lives, what we understand is that your power is not just something that stays in our minds and has no effect upon our lives, but it is real. It, it can affect change in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray as we are reminded of your great power that we would actually live as if you are powerful. We pray that you would help us to strive with the Spirit's power and to the best of our ability to please you in all things. 
Help us, Lord, when we doubt. Help us when we fear. All we want, Lord, is for you to be known and for you to be glorified. In your son's name we pray. Amen.